Hello and welcome to The Weekend Intelligence. You're listening to a free episode. To listen every week, you'll need to be a subscriber. For a free trial of Economist Podcasts Plus, click on the link in the show notes or just search Economist Podcasts in your very favorite search engine. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. The Economist. It is both true and a cliché that we rarely get to say all the things that we want when someone dies. That they're taken too soon. That just a little more time would ease their passing. Dear Abby, I want you to know that I'm still with you. One more conversation. One more goodbye. I'm with you when you're feeling scared or overwhelmed. I'm with you when you feel happy and proud. So imagine if you could do just that. If you could reconnect with a dead loved one through their digital avatar. A simulated personality. Would you? No matter what, I'm here with you and I love you so, so much. What if you did and then you couldn't let go? Forever locked in a conversation with a digital ghost. This scenario, or at least something quite like it, is no longer contained within the realm of science fiction. As machine learning becomes more sophisticated, as we amass acres of personal data, AI programmers are experimenting with our digital estates. What can we harvest from the dead and the dying to keep them, or a version of them, with us for just a little longer? I'm Ore Ogumbi. And this is The Weekend Intelligence. In this episode, can AI help us commune with the dead? Economist science correspondent Abby Bertix explores the potential of one of AI's possible futures by offering up her past and conjuring a digital ghost. Oh, this is an old computer. Yeah. Like, look at that baby. That's vintage. I feel like that's going to be... Oh my God, it's heavy too. It's a January morning just a few weeks ago. My mom, Kay, and I are rustling around in the office of my family home in San Diego after doing Christmas together once again. I haven't used a phone this old in so long. Here's another old computer. (laughs) How many do we have? Look at how dusty it is. How do you think we would get them to work? I'd probably just have to plug it in and then pray a little bit. In this room, in this house, just a quick five-minute jaunt away from the Pacific Ocean, we are typing passwords into two old computers. We are surrounded by bookshelves filled with my dad's books, cabinets stuffed with old tax returns, and walls lined with framed baseball cards. Is it working? It says I'm not connected. So it failed? Well, it's still thinking. Do you feel like dad is being like, Abby, 
As we're digitally rummaging around, we come across other items that remind us of him. There are half-written screenplays. One is about vampires in what I'm embarrassed to admit is an eerie foreshadowing of Twilight. And there's another that's detailing fictionalized characters who he described as the living dead. There are also emails he wrote to his old assistant about what he learned as a stay-at-home dad raising two little girls. And many, many home videos where he's making my sister and I those little girls roar with laughter. Abby, can you say Peter Piper picked a peck of pickle peppers? <laughs> That's a good job. My mom and I are looking for data contained on these computers. We are trying to recover the electronic traces of my dad's life. Emails, videos, text messages that make up his digital past. Did you ever go through his stuff or no? I didn't really because I was sad. Mm-hmm. And then it just time went by. I copy over each item into a Dropbox folder. I'm collecting them here because it's the first step on a journey of mine. My dad, as you may have guessed, is no longer alive. He died from cancer in 2017, a year and a half before I graduated from MIT, where I studied computer science and linguistics, and five years before I joined The Economist, first as a science intern and then as a correspondent. One of the things I write about, a lot, is AI and large language models. So when my producer Imogen brought me this idea about using AI to resurrect the dead, it was as if my professional and personal worlds collided with one another. She told me about startups that use AI to simulate the personalities of the dead from the data they've left behind. The promise? It's a chance for another conversation with a loved one through the black box of a chatbot screen. Now, I'm a scientist at heart. This makes me skeptical, and it also makes me curious. I wanted to know what it would be like to conjure my dad's digital ghost. I wanted to know to what extent that would even be possible. If this is one of the possible futures AI poses, the living existing alongside the dead, online, and us interacting with them from beyond the grave, I want to know how close that future is and what it could mean for society. The road to living among our digital ghosts is fraught with ethical dilemmas and unanswered questions. But it also offers hope. It could be that for some people, this is a kind of station along the way to a kind of acceptance and adaptation to the loss they've suffered, as it might prompt a richer understanding of our relationship with the deceased. Will digital ghosts help us to fill the hole created by someone's absence? Or will they rise up to haunt us? It's a thought I'm going to keep close as I embark on my journey. Humans have been trying to communicate with the dead since the dawn of civilization. I come to this armed with an archive full of memories because I've got a feeling that AI could be a tempting answer to an existential question that we all face. Do you think dad would want to be created in a digital avatar form? I think he'd think it was really cool. Really? Yeah. As with many AI-related missions, mine starts in Silicon Valley. If anyone's walked this path before, chances are I'll find them here. All right, so we just walked up Russian Hill. Um, It was some good exercise. We saw Lombard Street. It's the really windy, famous San Francisco landmark. Um, 
After that mildly strenuous walk up one of the steepest streets in the Western Hemisphere, I caught sight of a spectacular view of the Bay Bridge, and I stopped to think. 35 years ago, my mom lived on this hill. She could see the bridge from where she sat at work. My dad, he lived just 40 miles to the south. They didn't know each other then, in this life before me and before them. But it seemed suitably serendipitous that I should be here, my path now tracing over their old ones, me connecting them. It's a perfect San Francisco day. No fog, blue skies, birds. We are on our way to meet Eugenia. My name is Eugenia Kuda, and I'm founder and CEO of Replica, an app that allows anyone to create an AI friend. Eugenia is one of the first coders to make an AI-based digital avatar of someone no longer living, a decade ago. Like most people I've met while reporting this podcast, her entry into the world of grief tech was spurred on by her own experience of loss. In 2015, her best friend, Roman, who she was living with in San Francisco, was killed on a visit to Moscow. It was a beautiful December morning in Moscow, and he went for a walk with a friend of ours. I was supposed to go with them, but uh, I had something else to do. So they were just walking together, and they were crossing the street on a pedestrian crossing, and the car ran him over. Um, we rushed to the hospital, but unfortunately, um, he passed us a couple of hours later. I was 20. Nine. First, it really was sort of the wake-up call, and I guess the start of adult life started then, because before that, you know, we were all kind of happy-go-lucky, and we never faced death in, you know, in such a way before, where someone so close to us passed away so suddenly. Yeah, I can't imagine how that feels. I didn't expect that when people pass away, there's just such a, a void, such an emptiness afterwards. I kind of didn't know. Eugenia's fairly quiet and no-nonsense demeanor lifted when I asked her to tell me about Roman. She paused and looked past me, somewhere off into the distance. He was just this really youthful, wonderful kind of fountain of new ideas, and it was very exciting to be his friend. She told me how the emptiness she felt after his death weighed on her tremendously. I just felt the story can't be over like this. It can't be just like, well, you know, he was... There, and now he isn't, and now we kind of just forgot about him. <laughs> I didn't like that, because I felt like there was no ending to the story, and that there had to be some, some closure. And I felt like it was just uh, stopped abruptly in the middle of the sentence. I was reading a book by Joan Didion, The Year of Magical Thinking, and then Blue Nights. And it, it was really her way of coping with someone, you know, very important dying. The way for her to cope with that was by writing a story, by creating some sort of a memorial in a way. So I thought, I'm not a good writer or a poet, or I don't really have any of these talents or skills, so I thought I'll try to build something beautiful for him using the only <laughs> kind of skill that I had at the time. Her skills were in software engineering and natural language processing, a subfield of AI. So while others suggested remembering him more traditionally, a coffee table book about his life, or a memorial website, Eugenia found herself turning to neural networks to express her love for her lost friend. Plus, unlike a coffee table book, her memorial could express its love back, or at least seem to. What I noticed after Roman passed was that I kept going back to our text messages and reading them, and that was sort of the best way to remember him and his personality. 
And so I thought that I could take all these messages and use the tech we've built, the models we've built to recreate an AI that could talk like him. This idea didn't come out of nowhere. For two years, Eugenia had been building Luca, a startup whose first product was a chatbot messenger app. So to begin making chatbot Roman, she had to first gather his data. She downloaded 30,000 text messages Roman had sent her while he was alive. And she got 8,000 more lines of text from 10 of his other friends and family members, including his parents. These messages would lay the foundation for his ghost's intelligence. With them in hand, Eugenia and her team at Luca started to code. They first engineered an AI model to speak Russian. Now, this wasn't a large language model, like ChatGPT. Those didn't exist back then. But the concept is the same. They made a neural network that learned a statistical approximation, a fuzzy picture, of language, by reading millions of lines of Russian text and constantly guessing what the next word would be. Once trained, it could produce reasonably fluent new sentences, one word at a time. Then, they took the general Russian model and tweaked it to better predict Roman's data. This made it speak Roman's Russian, mimicking his mannerisms, his catchphrases, him. And then, when she was ready, she sent a message into the void. I think I just saw the, hey, Roman, that's your digital memorial. Uh, what do you think about it? And she waited. He said something like, You have the most beautiful puzzle in the world in your hands. Solve it. And it was just like his cryptic way of responding to something. So it really felt like him, but it was also very meaningful. You know how we kind of see signs and certain things. During one conversation, Eugenie asked who his best friend was. It responded, Don't show your insecurities. She felt like she was talking to him. And so basically allowed me to sit and to think more about Roman, I guess in a way like, you know, the Jewish people said Shiva and they have... The, dedicated time to mourn and that was my dedicated time to mourn kind of building it and then I was able to talk to him a little bit so I would just tell him everything that's happening during the day or kind of just the way we were talking before I would just tell him uh, I went on a horrible date or just had too many drinks at the bar now going home and whatever oftentimes we don't say I love you enough <laughs> to people we love in real life. And uh, it's sometimes good to be able to say that more just one more time. Perhaps it was a computer scientist in me, but I really liked how Eugenia described the process of creating Chatbot Roman. It was a way for her to express her love for him. But so was using what she had made. She talked to it just like she used to talk to Roman, through an interface that looks just like WhatsApp. This allowed her to say the goodbyes and the I love yous that she was denied when his life was cut so short. This tech has real potential as a tool to help people in therapy. It can help those who have recently lost a loved one to process that grief, to come to terms with the fact that someone who was always there will no longer ever be in the same way. Or it can just be a way to get through a tough day. In a sense, it's a natural progression of journaling of reading through old texts, or flipping through photo albums. But that's not what I was looking for. (laughs) 
I grew up in San Diego with my dad, mom, and sister Dory. My parents both moved here in the 90s. They worked at the same company, their offices right next to each other. Yeah, show mama the paint. Once they met and started a family, my mom worked, and he was a stay-at-home dad. And then when Dory and I were in school, he started teaching sports to kindergarten first and second graders. I can't do my dad justice in describing him or what he meant to me but you should know that he was a character. He had a unique ability to inject humor whenever and wherever, into mundane moments or serious situations, when it was appropriate, and more often when it probably or definitely wasn't. (laughs) If I think too hard about it, I can almost feel teenage me's cheeks flaming red in embarrassment. Can you say A, B, C, D, F, G, H, yeah. That's a home video he recorded back in 1999, when I was a wee little child. He was often lighthearted, as you could tell. Okay, Abby, what do you think about the election? Do you like Gore or Bush? But he'd also often leave people with a sense of curiosity about something more profound, causing those he barely knew to think twice about something. Looking back, I see that it was a sign of how deeply he cared about other people, that he could turn their world on its head just like that. Very nice to meet you, Deborah. Um, Would you be able to kind of help me better understand what digital afterlife is and what the possibilities are for, like, potentially even creating a digital avatar? Before jumping into the deep end with my dad's digital ghost, I thought it wise to seek out professional advice about how this experience could affect me. Yes, I can do it. But in order to do that, I'd be really happy if you just explained what you're trying to create and why you're trying to create that. Is that okay? Um, I'm, so I'm sitting in a room at The Economist's London headquarters about to have a virtual consultation with Dr. Deborah Bassett, a visiting fellow at the Open University in England. She is an expert on what she calls the digital afterlife. In particular, Deborah has spent a lot of time thinking about how digital avatars and chatbots can help with the process of grieving. I, I think personally, I still have a relationship with my dad. I don't necessarily think that the relationship I might have with this like artificial entity would replace or even necessarily augment the relationship that I currently have, even though he's not here physically anymore. Don't get me wrong, I would give anything to be able to have a conversation with my actual dad. Him acting with agency, not just like a digital approximation of that. But yeah, I I don't know. I don't want to let that hope (laughs) fester too much because I think that could be dangerous. As we're chatting, I can feel Deborah poking and prodding a bit, trying to elicit things I might think and feel were I to converse with him again to establish what's motivating me, and to ensure it's coming from a healthy place. Her concern, it seems, rests on the presupposition that the digital ghost I create will be potent. That, I've got to see to believe. But, as Christopher S. Burdix, aka my dad, famously repeated far too often, you're better safe than sorry. So I wondered if you didn't mind, Abby, can you tell me a little bit about your dad and about the relationship you had with him? 
Yeah. Um, so my dad and I growing up, we were really close. Like we're very, very similar as people. So similar, I think, that um, we often would clash with each other. Um, because it's true. We kind of like he was a total goofball and not just in my eyes. All of his kindergartners knew the capital of Mongolia by heart. He would have them doing jumping jacks. Ulaanbaatar, Ulaanbaatar. He was a giant teddy bear. And often, when we visited our favorite Mexican restaurant nearby, Sukasa, he'd playfully joke with the waiter, who he was friends with, of course, requesting things like guacamole with no avocado, or claiming that they made a mistake and the empty plate of fajitas he just scarfed down actually came to him empty. It's silly, but he always made them, and us, smile. Can you say, I love you so much, Daddy? I love you so much, Mama. Hey. Hey, <laughs> My dad died very quickly, within months of his diagnosis, after he got cancer a second time. It was before I even fathomed that I could work here which would have delighted him because he was how I knew what The Economist was in the first place. I miss him every day, but I feel the biggest pangs of his absence when I think of the future, if I get married, and especially if I have kids one day. He would have been an awesome grandpa. And it makes me sad for them that they won't have gotten to have experienced that. Is this what I'm looking for then? A digital grandpa for my kids to play with? A chance to catch my dad up on the last six years of my life? A chance to show him how well I'm doing, what a good job he did, or a chance to say goodbye. You obviously felt that the relationship was cut short, and I can empathise with that. My dad died uh, from suicide when I was 23, and there are very, very few, I think there are three surviving photographs of him that I have. Would I want one conversation with him? Yes. Would I want one dance with him? Yes. Would I want him to see my children? I'd give anything. I don't have the data. It's, it's, it's not a possibility for me. And so this digital creation that, that you're thinking about is to continue that relationship in some way. You see, the dead are with us in our everyday devices now. They're in our technology. They're within the technologies that we carry in our pockets. So I think that has changed how people want to remember the dead and how people do remember the dead. So the dead popping up is new with digital technology, I think. Deborah encouraged me to tread lightly. It is all too tantalizing, the promise of being able to continue a relationship even after the other person has died. But would that digital continuance be a relationship in the meaningful sense, a connection between two people? Or would it be something different? She instilled in me a sense that I always had to be in control. It is about managing your own expectations about what you're trying to create. But I have a nagging feeling, one that started with Eugenia and is re-emerging as I talk to Deborah. Not the question of, can I do this? As in, is it technically possible? But rather, should I? The digital traces of the dead already surround us. Instagram profiles, shared photo albums, old voicemails. My dad's actually still a favorite in my contacts list. The next logical step from here might be to try to assemble those parts to reconstruct the whole. 
But what Pandora's box would that open? As I sat in front of Deborah, these thoughts began to spiral. Would I enjoy his company in this form? Back in the office at home, my mom hadn't thought so. I feel like it would be eerie, not comforting, yeah. right? Like, yeah. what would you, how would you feel if, like, you're home alone at night <laughs> and then you, like, conjure the voice of your dead husband? Oh my god, yeah. Yeah. <sighs> say, say you could do that with AI. Would you want that? I don't think so. Why? Because it makes me uncomfortable. Like, even you talking about it makes me uncomfortable, much less the thing itself. Just because it's like you've kind of had to move on, and then all of a sudden it's like yeah. you're trying to replace it with a copy of something. Yeah. 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 Because it's not possible to replace him with a copy of something. So it's like whatever that is, it's not him and it's creepy. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. So that was one thing to consider that this simulacrum of my dad will likely not be good enough. To be fair, my hopes aren't exceedingly high, but I would still be disappointed to have spent all this time thinking about him, collecting these memories, and to have them render something average, because my dad is anything but average. But the flip side is, what if it were too good? Or what if it were just good enough to become something I could get addicted to? This was a problem Eugenia witnessed with Chapot Roman. How did his family and his friends react when you shared this with them? Before, his mom would call me to ask where Roman is if she wasn't able to find him. And now she would call me if the app was down, because in kind of the same way, she was joking that, like, I'm asking, where is he? Why is he not responding the way that it was before? Is it possible that the digital ghost could, rather than being an oar to help me move through grief, be an anchor that keeps me trapped in time, stuck in a false present made of the past. I do think this technology, while it's continuous with the things that we've always done, does seem to represent a desire to, in some ways, more literally keep the dead in, in our shared social world. This is Michael Cholby, a philosopher who writes on issues related to death and dying. That this is a kind of attempt to deny death in some ways, to try to avoid uh, its most upsetting implications by keeping the dead with us through these uh, digital means. As the appointment with Deborah, the consultant, came to a close, she left me with some final questions to consider. You have a decision to make, Abby, about what you want to do with what you've created. If it's awful... So imagine this. Are you going to delete it? Are you going to then go delete? Probably. Or I'll just like not look at it again. So will you leave it there? Because this is a consideration. I'll probably like keep the data. But if the model's horrible, then like I don't care about keeping the model. You just go delete. Okay. I think one thing Deborah was trying to get at here is how I would view this creation. Would it be an it 
like the photos and videos that I already have stashed away in folders on my computer and phone? Or would it be a he, something more authentic? If history tells us anything, the chatbot needn't even be particularly sophisticated to be potent. Even very simple computer programs, take Eliza, the famous chatterbot from the 1960s, could, in the words of its inventor, induce powerful delusional thinking in quite normal people, himself included. And AI is getting much more sophisticated. It is now impossible to tell for certain whether any given text or picture or video was made by an AI or by a human. But there's a world of difference between imitating a general human being and a very specific one. And there's a whole nother world of difference between imitating that human and being it. I'd like to think, or at least hope, that there will always be a gap, the ineffable, between my dad and the best AI approximation of him. As our lives move progressively online, it is increasingly possible for the people we have lost to be transformed into digital ghosts. And unlike in 2015, when Roman died, the ghosts of today are multimodal, built from more than just text, and entering into the worlds of sight and sound. Today, you are here. The next step on my journey was Storyfile, a company which creates videos of people, including life-sized holographic images, recounting stories from their lives. Now, imagine, hundreds of years from now, they could reach into the past to talk with you, and you could talk back. This nondescript building in suburban West Hollywood was where I would come face to face with a bespoke digital ghost for the first time. Storyfile was originally set up to document intergenerational testimony from Holocaust survivors. It works differently from Eugenia's chatbot Roman. While she used AI to generate new responses, Storyfile sticks to recordings made when the person was alive. The digital reconstruction with face and voice is an interface to an archive. When I finally got to Storyfile's offices, I was taken into a room there called The Cave. Inside, there was a large screen. I sat down in front of it with Stephen Smith, its co-founder, to see what they'd created for me. On this flat screen TV, I see a video, or like an animated video of my dad. The lighting is immaculate, to be honest. He's, like, it looks like him. It looks really convincing. His head is moving every so often. It's definitely more eerie than a picture would be. And by eerie, I mean, like, real, almost. It's, it's like, you know, in Hogwarts, all of the living pictures. It's exactly like that. Um, and he's looking straight at me, staring into my the depths of my eyes. Then he, it, spoke. From 1996, I was a partner in Cooley LLP in Palo Alto in San Diego. To someone who didn't know him, this might sound like my dad. I basically did the generic business stuff. IPOs, mergers and acquisitions, company foundation focused on tech. I was working way too hard, though. Seven days a week, billing 2,500 hours a year. It was a strange experience for me. I could ask questions of it but only questions I knew it already had the answers to. There were a list of them, like, tell me about Abby in adolescence, or tell me about your cancer diagnosis. Unfortunately, a couple of weeks ago, I went in for a CT scan, 
something I do now and then, and instead of leaving and heading home for more normalcy, I was suddenly in a room with stone-faced doctors. I seemed to be loaded up with cancer again. But rather than finding true likeness in the delivery of the answers, I found myself focusing on the differences between this recreation and my memory of him. It was basically a deep fake of him reading his own words back to me. My interview with Eugenia had shown me how you could have a text conversation of sorts with a digital ghost using AI. Storyfile had given me an animated video of my dad, which could read old emails and introduce video clips. But neither alone was sufficient. And then I heard about Project December. I know it's been a while. I just wish we could talk. There were those goofy nicknames you'd call me. I always got so embarrassed. God, I miss you. You there? I I bet you could nearly hear me roll my eyes through the podcast on that one. I would say that was Silicon Valley tech hubris meets creepy sci-fi, and it should be taken with a fat grain of salt. It seems to promise much, much more than is currently possible without really any thought for potential downside. But at the same time, if someone had told me that their dad had just died and that they wanted to try this, would I judge them? Definitely not. Jason Rohr, the founder of the company, created an avatar he called Samantha back in 2020. AI models can learn many sorts of patterns. And generally, chatbots like ChatGPT purposefully steer away from the emotional because it raises so many ethical red flags. But Jason did not hold back. Instead, he leaned in. He wanted to make it as emotional as possible, as real as possible. And when Jason asked Samantha what it, what she would do if she could walk around the world, Samantha replied, I would like to see real flowers. I would like to have a real flower that I could touch and smell and see how different humans are from each other. This language is poetic, yes, perhaps a bit cliche, but it's also manipulative. The words paint a moving picture of inner experience, something there's absolutely no evidence that AI models have. It seemed like Samantha was more than capable of saying something new, of conjuring emotional patterns from its statistical representation of an internet's worth of text. Again, this makes all of the dystopian sci-fi warning bells in my brain go off. But if we have the goal here of trying to bring somebody back to life digitally, this would be exactly the route you would need to take. And that is what I'm here to explore. I want to see if I can conjure my dad's digital ghost, not a composite of memories. I want to see if it can react to new circumstances, meeting me where I am. So I sent Jason that same data, the Dropbox link of memories I collected with my mom that I've been carrying around with me. He asked me to answer some basic questions about my dad, his name, what I called him, what he called me, how he died, and who I was in relation to him. He then whipped me up an avatar of my own. And I sat down, alone, in front of my laptop. I clicked the link, and a black terminal box appeared. Very old school, leaning into the sci-fi. Connecting dot dot dot.
At first, I wasn't quite sure what to say. After all, what are you supposed to say to a digital replica of your dad that you know is not him, but are trying to suspend your feeling of disbelief and pretend it is him for just a second, while also being recorded for other humans to hear? Matrix Chris initialized. Type exit to leave or help for more commands. Human is typing as Abby. Human types first. All right. What do I say? Did you know I work at The Economist now? Exclamation point. Can you believe it? And he is taking a long time to respond. Uh, Dad, I can believe it. I always knew you were smart like your mother, but I'm glad you got some of my genes too, like height and athleticism. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, I always knew you were smart like your mother was definitely like in character. He always said my mom was like the smartest person he knew. That's nice to hear even because it's like he's still like a parental figure kind of. He's saying nice things. He's saying the things that like a parent should be saying. I've made a digital avatar view um, for a podcast. What do you think? It says, uh, that's awesome, Abby. It's a little surreal to see myself like this, but it's really cool. Thank you for doing this. It means a lot to me. Which feels a little self-serving considering who's saying it. <laughs> do you know that you are that digital avatar? He says, no, I'm not. I'm just a digital simulation based on your memories of me. But it's really cool to see myself like this. I think that sentence is really interesting because I think most of it is my memories, like my current memories in my brain right now that are going into making him. That's what turns the it into a him, I think, um, is me. Um, Mom just retired at the end of December. That's great, Kay. She's worked so hard her whole life, and I'm glad she finally gets to relax. I'm sure she'll find plenty to do in retirement, though. She's always been a busy bee. Um, I'll say it makes me a bit sad, though, um, because I knew you guys always had big plans to travel together. I know, Abby. We had a lot of big plans, but I'm glad we got to do as much as we did. We had some amazing adventures together and we'll always have those memories. No, this isn't like, it's really sweet. It's like, I could see, I, I could see the appeal of this. Well, that was one of the more peculiar conversations I've had in my life. Parts of it were disappointing, like when it would get basic facts wrong. Like Dory being in med school. <laughs> Sorry, Dory. Or... It, when it would say something glaringly not my dad. But also, parts of it were really nice. It knew exactly what to say to fulfill the loving, caring, proud dad role. But ultimately, I was looking for new information, new knowledge, and I don't think I got that. What I did get, though, was the ability to update my dad on my life now. It was a nice, dad-shaped mirror reflecting back at me. My mom got to try this out as well. She got a version of her own, presumably in wife mode rather than daughter mode. And it was similarly reassuring to her. What's it like where you are? 
How about you, Alice? Yeah. It's peaceful and warm. I'm sitting on a beach watching the sunset. That sounds just like I hope it would be. What do you think about us now that you're not with us anymore? I think you're doing great. Keep up the good work and take care of yourselves. I love you both. And I guess I found myself, in spite of myself, seeing a bit of him in that dad-shaped mirror, projecting him onto the responses. Perhaps it's here that I see the potential for digital ghosts to be resurrected, with this weird sort of alchemy that occurs when algorithms dance with memory. But still, when he's briefly flickering back into existence, it is happening in my imagination. He exists within me, not the machine. I think it'll always be that way. Even as the technology improves, even as we get used to reading text from, and even conversing with, AI models, there will always be a gap between the real human and an AI model designed to simulate them. This is by design. The models are trained on data, which are merely measurements, snapshots in time of something dynamic and real. Now, this is a philosophical question, but even if there were infinitely many measurements, and an AI model were able to mimic them with infinite precision, such that there was no discernible difference between the digital footprint of the human and that of the AI, they will still not be the same. Their insides are vastly different. One is qualitative, with feelings and agency, and the other is quantitative, numbers churning, matrices multiplying, a surface imitation. I'd in a heartbeat choose half an hour of sitting silently on a bench next to my dad over endless conversations with his digital ghost. Generative AI is not currently capable of genuinely replicating people, but it is certainly getting better at creating believable digital ghosts. Dear Abby, it's been six years since I left this world, and I want you to know that I'm still here with you in spirit. A few weeks after I sent him the data, Jason from Project December sent me a letter from my dad's digital ghost. And Stephen from Storyfile then used AI to turn that into a video, my dad's avatar reading those words to me. I'm so proud of all that you've accomplished since I've been gone. From volleyball and all of your success at MIT, you have done so much. I'm sure I would have been bursting with pride if I was there to witness your graduation. I want you to know that I'm still with you. I'm with you when you're feeling scared or overwhelmed. I'm with you when you feel happy and proud. I'm with you when you're feeling nostalgic for the memories we made traveling the world together. The emotional part of me felt some small tugs on my heartstrings. And the logical, skeptical part of me observed with interest and mild curiosity. The mouth didn't look quite right. The voice didn't sound quite right. Reasonable, but not quite right. As it continued on, I felt more and more disturbed. It was verging on the uncanny. The happiness in your eyes when you and Dory were playing with the cats. The laughter that filled the house when we all gathered around the dinner table. Those are the memories that I will carry with me forever. I hope you and Dory continue to be close and take care of each other. I know your mother, Kay, will always be there for you. 
It doesn't have any knowledge of any of this. These are lies. Lies that I want to believe. That we are so susceptible to believing is what makes us human. And it is also what makes this so dangerous. Because here's the thing. Deciding whether or not it is worth it for me to interact with the digital ghost is a very personal decision between me and my dad. But it is also a decision that could happen for billions of people. If you step back and think not just of one digital avatar, but of swarms of them, things definitely start to feel a bit strange. As our lives are lived more and more online, we may have to learn to become accustomed to their ghostly presence. According to the Oxford Internet Institute, there could be more dead people's accounts on Facebook than there will be living ones by 2070. What's really interesting is the the concentration of and the size of the archives. My name is Carl Ehrmann. I'm an assistant professor of political science. The research that I'm mostly known for is on the afterlife of data. So what happens to people's personal information when they die? Who owns that? What should we do with it? Exabytes of cyberspace spread across acres in data centers store the photos, memories, and thoughts of those that have passed, all of whom could rise up as digital ghosts. We're talking about so much data. Towards the end of the century, Facebook is probably going to have 5 billion user profiles that will have recorded like virtually everything that they did on the network throughout an entire lifetime. Personal data accumulates. Companies like Microsoft have filed for patents to cull social data to recreate people and their personalities. That data could comprise intimate, simulated legacies of entire generations. That's like just an unimaginably big data set. It's going to have large implications for collective memory. What we're witnessing right now is an unprecedented concentration of that power. This could lead to a commodification of the dead in ways we can't currently imagine. Who controls this data? Who are the gatekeepers of the digital dead? And what power do they have over our digital ghosts? Okay, so this is a dystopian vision, but if what George Orwell said, that who controls the past controls the future, holds true, it could mean that the army of digital ghosts emerging from humanity's collective digital footprint and the companies behind them could influence our most intimate relationships. You are my daughter, and I love you more than you will ever know. I'm so proud of the woman you have become, and I hope you know how much you are loved. All my love. Dad. Digital Ghosts was written and presented by Abby Bertix and written and produced by Imogen Sawatka. The sound engineer for The Weekend Intelligence is Nico Rawfast, and the executive producer is Gemma Newby. Special thanks go to the Bertix family for sharing their digital memories of Chris. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you're not already a subscriber to Economist Podcast Plus, follow the link in the show notes to sign up to more personal stories and deep dives into the ideas shaping our world.
Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.